0: Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to Solarpunk. In this podcast,
1: we cover topics related to space and defense, and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Delian is a principal at Founders Fund and co-founder and president of Varda Space Industries, which is building the world's first space factories. Before joining Founders Fund, he was a principal at Coastal Ventures, head of growth at Teespring, and founder of a healthcare company called Nightingale. Delian is Bulgarian, attended MIT, and likes to ski and play soccer. Delian, welcome.
2: Thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, I, lo- I love. Uh, sometimes it's funny to you know be out of body and hear somebody else uh, you know read your bio. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
1: it's a good bio. You have done a lot. Um, and actually, speaking of all of the things that you've done, right? We just mentioned you founded Varda, you're an investor at Founders Fund, you run a podcast, like you're working on um, a lot of different things. You were part of the major reason that there's this massive move to Miami, thanks to uh, one of your tweets. Given all of that, what takes up most of your mind share? Like on a daily basis, what are you thinking the most about? Like, is it all of those at once? Is it broken up? How, what goes on in your brain?
2: Uh, you know, I, tend to believe that most of the time, you know, doing these various jobs requires being a bit of a firefighter. So, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, I'm in a mode right now where, uh, I can't afford too much, call it proactive work. I'm in a very sort of, you know, reactive mode and, you know, life has ebbs and flows, right. You know, at the very beginning of Varda, when I was, you know, more in the ideation phase and, you know, trying to find the team was a very sort of, you know, proactive effort. Um, so, you know, nowadays most of the, you know, sort of, you know, fires that need to be fought or, you know, around Varda, you know, there's occasional, you know, things that come up, uh you know, with some of the various portfolio companies that we that I have, you know, over at Founders Fund, but, you know, day to day, it's everything from, you know, gosh, DoD customers to, you know, upcoming media stories, to fundraising, to, you know, you're catching me at, you know, 15 weeks before we need to ship out, you know, the first, you know, hardware for our first mission. And today is actually, you know, CDR, Critical Design Review, which is effectively sort of the last design review with, you know, all of our sort of key vendors. So, uh, you know, it's 12 hours of basically lots of engineers talking about every single nitty gritty little aspect. Uh, and so we're in the midst of structural qualification campaigns um, and how to make sure that uh, the primary structures can you know, survive the vibrations um, of the launch environment, uh, amongst many other things. <laughs> well, we're lucky
1: you uh, we pulled you out of that for a few minutes to chat with you about all of this, but that's a massive milestone uh, for any hardware company, especially you guys. So congrats on uh, hitting that today. Super
2: excited um, about it.
0: And Delian, as a fellow immigrant, you've always talked about the importance of, you know, investing in building companies that that either work with the government or, you know, that are in the defense and space industries. What drives you and why is that important to you?
2: Yeah, I think it comes from like a you know sort of multitude of motivations. The like you know sort of core and primary primary one being that you know I feel very grateful that you know I was born in a country that you know is effectively you know still very much so a second world country. You know Bulgaria's GDP per capita is you know roughly you know fourteen thousand you know dollars even today. Let alone when I was born, when it was far far you know lower with the fall of the Soviet Union. My parents were able to immigrate you know out to the United States. Uh, and get a uh, sort of first class education at the California Institute of Technology, uh, you know, sort of claw their way up from, you know, moving to the states with 500 bucks to, you know, eventually being, you know, very comfortably sort of upper middle class, um, and then got to get, you know, educated at, you know, one of the preeminent, you know, engineering institutions myself, the Massachusetts, like Institute, um, of, you know, technology. And I think, that whole, you know, path and you know transition from, you know, sort of middle of nowhere, second world country, you know, to getting to, you know, have a very, you know, comfortable life and setting it at a top tier institution is only really possible, you know, in America. And I think the things that I've been able to, you know, sort of accomplish are only possible in America, but fundamentally that requires, you know, the, you know, institution and idea of America to continue to persist, which is largely, you know, dependent on sort of, you know, western you know values and democracies being the sort of uh predominant power structure of the entire world right i think at the moment that that started to you know shift towards autocracies um and uh totalitarian you know regimes i think um i think for people to sort of go through that same experience and so um the course of my life i think you know become in some ways you know even prouder and prouder to be an american and want to you know believe more in defending those ideals at the same time you know over the course of you know called the you know last 20 years, you know, the, you know, the shift towards more Western democratic you know, values is actually reversed, you know, right now, if you either you know, study since, you know, roughly 2005, um, there have only been, you know, more cities and a larger percentage of the population on earth, um, that is, you know, currently being ruled by an autocratic, you know, regime. And so it's not, it, it, the default is not that the world will end up being, uh, you know, democratic and free, um, let alone. Uh, as we start to introduce more and more, you know, technologies and, you know, potential sort of spheres of influence, right? Uh, You know, one of the things that I recently tweeted was that, you know, one of my primary motivations for waking up every single day um, is to ensure that the, you know, language spoken on the moon is mostly English, not Mandarin. Uh, Now that had little to do with the languages and more so to do with the sort of, you know, values uh, that those, you know, languages represent, Uh, English being the sort of Western democratic values and, you know, Chinese being the values of the CCP. Well, you know, how does one ensure that, you know, those types of, you know, values persist? I tend to believe in that the only way that, like, you know, sort of peace and democratic values get spread is through strength. Um, and strength, you know, today um, comes through technological superiority. We have two near peer adversaries, China and Russia. They're, you know, incredibly, you know, competent and they're incredibly technologically advanced. Um, and, you know, the only way to stay ahead of them is to be one step ahead of them on technologies. Right now, there are certain areas uh, technology where we're actually fighting from behind, right? You know both you know China and you know North Korea supposedly uh, you know have now demonstrated you know hypersonic you know targeted you know weapons uh, glide vehicles that the United States currently does not have the ability to fly, let alone actually you know shoot down or prevent you know from hitting a target on u s. soil. And so I think what most people don't appreciate is that a China hypersonic glide vehicle with a little bit better targeting could hit the White House, kill the president, and we would have no way of defending against that. And so we need to catch up to them, you know, technologically, both in areas that were behind and maintain a step ahead. At the same time, in Western capitalist democracies right now, the, like, sort of tip of the technological sphere and where, you know, sort of the boundaries get pushed is no longer within national labs, the DOD, DARPA, et cetera. That is where it was for a very long time. Uh, but now if you study it across AI, quantum, material science, aerospace, et cetera, all of these sort of, you know, or most of the, like, you know, boundaries of technologies are currently, you know, getting pushed. Through largely, you know, private industry and largely venture-backed startups, and so I think it's you know sort of fundamental to you know sort of protecting our way of life. I think actually, you know, VCs have a sort of moral obligation towards funding these types of dual-use companies that are both working on technology, you know, commercially that you know provides large-scale venture returns, but also allows us to stay a step ahead of these near-peer, very competent and evil, you know, adversaries that we face in the world. So yeah, long-winded answer to you know. Bulgarian immigrant believes that we should all be funding dual use.
0: (laughs) No, I I, I love this. Uh, And, you know, as you mentioned, it turns out we haven't reached the end of history and and it's up to us to to actually to to actually build these things. And out of all the things you could be doing uh, in, in the industry, what made you want to start Varda?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it, it was an idea that I had been, you know, fascinated with, you know, quite some time. I admit that the like sort of earliest versions of it, it didn't quite look exactly like what Varda looks like today. It originally honestly got kicked off with the Lunar X prize. I was like, you know, in high school, Google launches this like prize for like, okay, go to the moon, do something useful, take a photo, mine something, you know, bring it back and you get, you know, sort of prizes along the way. And I think it mostly, you know, sort of kicked off this like line of thinking that I've been sort of obsessed with ever since, which is if you actually study the like, you know, you, you know uh, the, the human exploration um, over the course of our history. Um, you know, the the settlements in the new frontier has only ever become a sort of sustainable uh, you know or had a sustainable human presence when there's been strong economic incentives right um, you know the the analogy that I like to give is like the way that California became California wasn't because Lewis and Clark came here on a, like a very large boat or lots of Lewis and Clark's came fundamentally what ended up making California California was the gold rush right the economic incentive and that you know while it was great that there was a lot of people thinking about how do we explore the stars I felt like there was not enough people thinking how do we industrialize or commercialize the stars. Um, and so, you know, the early versions of the idea were largely predicated on, let's say, the, you know, Lunar X Prize, um, whether it was like asteroid mining, lunar ice mining, lunar exploration, light sails, things like that. But, you know, over the course of spending, you know, call it roughly a decade, sort of think about it, the idea, ultimately realized that, you know, while many of those ideas had potential promise, um, most of them just were not in the you know, sort of near-term timeframes going to be commercially viable. And that the only one that really made sense was the sort of very first industrial step, which is basically um, what VARDA is now doing, which is take raw materials from Earth, bring them up to a very, very low part of orbit that is relatively cheap to get to, fabricate them into a finished product that has you know, higher you know, uh, performance because you're in microgravity, and then bring those materials back down. Um, and, you know, once one creates an industrial process and supply chain, you know, that sort of supports that, then those future ideas could become possible, right? Whether it's lunarized mining or asteroid mining, et cetera. Um, but that those just aren't possible. Like, the, you know, the way that I like to, you know, sort of explain it is like, look, asteroid mining is exciting. But like, who's buying water in orbit? You know what I mean? Like, it's basically just the ISS. and Like, yeah, okay, cool. You can, like, sell, like, tens or maybe hundreds of kilograms, maybe a month or something like that at best. It's just, like, not that large of a market. Difficult to, like, imagine venture scale. But if you have like space manufacturing platforms or orbital stations that are operating that are at much larger scale than the ISS, well then all of a sudden something like asteroid mining makes a lot more sense because there are people that actually want to purchase water in low earth orbit. And so uh, you know I, I originally you know, largely wanted to you know, tackle this from sort of like an investment you know, perspective, um, given that there were a variety of people that had thought about this idea of like take raw materials from Earth, bring them up to microgravity, fabricate them into a you know higher performance product. Um, but I actually spent you know the, sort of the, the, the last half of 2019 and early of 2020 right before COVID meeting with all these various groups that were working on it, and ultimately came away deciding that you know I didn't think that any of them were taking the appropriate approach. Um, that actually you know, would lead to sort of venture scale. Um, and there's sort of two primary you know, factors that you know, I was sort of disappointed by. The first was most of these groups were more interested in you know, sort of publishing research papers around the materials that they were working on, more so than actually you know, finding a commercial customer uh, for what they were producing. Um, and then the second, and in some ways more importantly, was none of these companies had the ambition to shift the supply chain of their material production in microgravity off of the ISS right the ISS does do on a very regular basis this type of material production right Merck um, you know spends 15 million dollars a year entirely on microgravity pharma experiments unfortunately they can send very very few of them and it takes a very long time from like start to finish of any one particular experiment because the ISS fundamentally is like a bureaucratic research institution that is run like by multinationals um, and there's like you know geopolitical implications for any decision that is made you know on there that is not a step in a supply chain that is like reasonable for any commercial customer, right? If you actually need to be producing things at scale, nobody's going to be waiting on the timelines and the costs um, that the ISS provides. Um, and going independent of the ISS to me felt like yes, a a, a tricky challenge, but not impossible. Versus all these groups that I talked to, effectively felt like it was impossible. Um, and so ultimately, started to realize, you know, sort of summer of 2020, I was like, unless I actually just do this myself, I fear um, that you know, in 2025. Um, you know i'll be you know sort of in the same situation where you know i'll be looking around and be like god damn it still nobody has quite done this the right way i like you know figured out how to make the supply chain sort of independent of the iss um, so that's kind of you know, the high level reason why I ultimately decided to you know, rather than invest in something, you know, start the company myself was, um, you know, one, believing that sort of the only way that humanity's presence in the stars actually became sustainable was through industrialization. And then two, the best and nearest term way to industrialize was this microgravity production of certain materials, uh, but that nobody really had the appropriate approach on that. And so I was like, well, I got to just you know, go after it the right way myself and put together the right team to go after it the right way and the funding as well.
0: That's awesome. Uh, and to double click on, on the point that you made, uh, there's dozens of reasons why space matters. There is the Elon Musk argument that it's the only way for humankind to actually prosper in the millions of years to come. There's the GFK argument that is aspirational. Um, and, and there's dozens and dozens of other arguments, both economic and geopolitical, that generally are you know under discussed. For you personally, why is, why is space so important?
2: I probably come at it like, you know, I'm sort of like a brutal economist. Like there was one time where, you know, investor was asking me, you know, what is sort of my motivation, you know, for working on Varda? And I think they were a bit taken aback when I was like, I just want to make a fuck ton of money. And most importantly, I want to show that it's possible to make a fuck ton of money off of space manufacturing. And I don't think that's the answer. They were expecting like a much more like, you know, hilly billy, alabala, you know, mission edition, you know, kind of fucking answer. and I didn't provide that to them. But, you know, I I kind of land on it, you know, sort of from that capitalistic perspective, which is just like, you know, fundamentally, I actually think that, capitalism is, you know, predicated on sort of a non-zero-sum game. And ultimately, while yes, we have clearly shown that we can extract productivity and resources and beauty, you know, you don't have the, you know, Milton sort of like overpopulation crowding, you know, problem that people feared in like the seventies, but that fundamentally there is some sort of economic cap to like, you know, what is possible on earth. Um, And that if all of a sudden sort of capitalism becomes a zero-sum game, I think it actually either spirals in a direction that is, you know, not great for society. And the best way to sort of keep it, as a non-zero-sum game is to expand sort of capitalism into, you know, sort of the, you know, solar system and then ultimately um, the galaxy and then the universe. And so I come at it from like a truly sort of, you know, capitalistic perspective, which is partially why if you look at the, you know, sort of the one-liner, uh, you know, mission of Varda that we you know define um, you know and repeat on a regular basis is Varda's core mission is to expand the economic bounds of humankind. Right? It is not the explorative bounds. It is not the physical bounds. It's not the spiritual bounds. It is not the you know multiplanetary. Make sure that we can survive on asteroid bounds. It is the economic bounds. Partially because I actually think that's the fastest way to accomplish those all of those other things. Like as much as people might want to become multiplanetary because they believe in some core mission, um, I think you know people will much faster become multiplanetary if they think it's going to make them really rich.
1: So it, an amazing overview um, to help people who are listening to this podcast better understand kind of the space economy and all the different aspects, right? I think on one hand, people obviously, Elon does an amazing job with SpaceX, visualizing these launches and the returns of the rockets and all of that. We have the satellite industry. We have people uh, who are doing things for earth observation, actual manufacturing, etc. cetera. Can you help break down the space economy? Like, what are the different aspects in your mind? Where does Varda fit into that? What aspects of it are you touching, are you not touching? And then we can go in a little bit more after that into where you think there might be other opportunities for people, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I mean, anytime that there's sort of a nascent new industry, you know, getting built up, it can be, you know, propped up with sort of massive amounts of funding and interest and engineers, but ultimately in order to become, you know, long term sustainable, it needs to connect into the rest of the economy, right? Like, you know, part of why, you know, you know, the early sort of, you know, dot com, you know, sort of bubble and, you know, crash happened was that these dot com companies didn't have a connection back to sort of the quote unquote, you know, core economy at the time, right? Versus When those ideas were in some ways, you know, repeated 15 years later, they were much more integrated into sort of like the quote unquote rest of the, you know, economy. And the same thing is very much so, you know, true in space. I I like to sometimes, you know, bucket companies into are they space companies that are sort of selling to other space companies or are they space companies that are connecting to the rest of the economy? And while both are necessary, you should really track the growth of the latter to determine basically like how healthy is this ecosystem and sort of um, uh, how long will survive um, uh, if there were, you know, call it suddenly a collapse in investor interest. Um, And so in the first sort of bucket companies of who are the space companies that largely sell to other space companies, there's effectively sort of two two types there. There's the first, the rocket launchers, right? So SpaceX, Rocket Lab, Astra, et cetera, you know, uh, down the line. Those companies obviously sell to other space companies and that they sell to largely, you know, satellite operators and give them basically, you know, rides up to orbit, as well as sell into, you know, DoD and NASA and also give DoD and NASA up to orbit. Um, The second is what I call the sort of supply chain of space, right? That again... You know, all the things that are getting built, whether it's the rockets or the satellites or, you know, you know, Varda's you know, orbital manufacturing stations, those companies obviously don't build every single little thing, you know, from scratch. And it turns out everything from the people that make, you know, fasteners to, you know, aerospace flight computers to, you know, solar panels, all of those are, you know, very important components of that space economy and all of them largely sell to, you know, space companies. We invested in some of these. One example, you know, sort of in our portfolios is company Hadrian Parts. Turns out, you know, I need like an aluminum bolt, you know, as a part of our, uh, you know, sort of spacecraft at endeavor. I can't just buy an aluminum bolt off the shelf because it turns out, like, I need to know that the like, tolerance is basically how precise that bolt has been manufactured. Are used to be far, far more precise than even like an automotive bolt or something like that, right? And so the sort of machine shop that makes my bolt needs to be a very particular type of machine shop, and there's basically not that many of those. They're largely, you know, predicated off of you know sort of the Apollo era level of production, and it turns out in you know today's day and age, there's so many more companies in the Apollo era that that current sort of supply chain of aerospace machine shops is falling apart. So there's old school versions of that type of supply chain and new school ones that are funded by us. The second category of companies uh, are what I call the sort of connection to the rest of the sort of economy, right? So um, the two sort of largest versions you somewhat touched on. So there's Earth Observation, companies like Planet Labs, iSci, Spire, um, a couple of those are some of the sort of largest players around sort of visual um, photographs, as well as synthetic aperture radar uh, and infrared. Those companies basically, effectively, you know, sell the you know photos of the Earth to everything from the DOD to hedge fund traders that are trying to look at okay, you know, how many you know ships are leaving you know Chinese ports as a way to predict economic demand and to give them alpha to you know methane gas pipeline operators that are trying to look for methane gas leaks and are using satellite images rather than trying to you know fly a helicopter or a plane over their you know pipeline every couple of days. Um, the next category of ways to sort of monetize in space. Um, that people have discovered, uh, you know, that allows you to connect to the rest of the space ecosystem uh, is basically, you know, sort of satellite communications, right? So Starlink, obviously, being right now the most prominent example. It's basically, you know, rather than you know trying to connect to a cell tower um, or you know trying to uh, you know run some sort of fiber, um, instead, why don't you just use basically the you know sort of satellite above you in the sky as a relay? Um, and use that to communicate um, that primarily, you know, sort of those, you know, types of satellite communications companies primarily don't sell to, you know, you or I sitting in, you know, downtown Miami, San Francisco, New York, et cetera, given that, you know, those, you know, cities have, you know, really dense sort of uh, communications infrastructures, but it typically means that you're in a more remote area. So whether it's, uh, you know, sort of remote individual using, you know, sort of Starlink in the middle of Yellowstone National Park. Um, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, a maritime, you know, Voyager a cruise ship or something like that using SES's, um, you know, sort of satellite, you know, constellation. Um, and those are basically the only two ways that people have figured out how to monetize in space. Now, there are sort of, you know, upcoming, you know, sort of business models. So let's, you know, maybe shift back to the people, uh, the upcoming business models that are sort of uh, space companies for space now there's basically so many satellites up there for the first time you can kind of think about it as there's enough cars on the road that like you could actually justify building a gas station rather than everybody basically having their own you know big old you know gas tank and so there's a handful of companies basically working um you know on sort of building those you know sort of both orbital refueling stations orbital servicing so you know if your you know, quote-unquote car has a leak if your satellite has a leak you can go get that fixed rather than having to discard the satellite Um, So that's some of the more, you know, nascent business models that I think are near term and exciting on the like space company, they're selling to other space companies. Um, And then, you know, the sort of space companies, the new business models that are space companies selling into the normal economy. I'd like to think that sort of Varda is obviously one of the most interesting in that we are, you know, not selling to other space companies. We're selling to people that purchase fiber optics, pharmaceuticals, semiconductors, these materials where we can produce them in much higher quality versions, but obviously most of you know, our customers could give less of a shit about us being a space company. Um, they just really like our materials. They don't know anything about aerospace. Um, so those are kind of the, you know, sort of rough breakdown of both the, you know, current and future business models in space. And also sort of those two categories of like, is it a space company just selling to other space companies, which is like great. It's infrastructure that's necessary, or is a space company selling into to the quote unquote real economy, which is like great because that's what will make sustainable, make space sustainable in the long term. Since as it turns out, you know, there's a lot more customers and, you know, capitalists on earth than there are in space
1: incredible overview. So, I, I, just to go a little bit further within that, one thing I'm curious about is what areas do you think are overhyped and what areas do you think are almost a little ignored or underhyped? And to dig in specifically on some things that resonated from you, what you said is, I think for example, there's a lot of earth observation companies that have now popped up. Do we need more? Do we need more launch companies? Is that overhyped, underhyped? Similarly, when we talk about things like Starlink and satellite communications, there's several companies working on all that. Do you think that we're at the point of saturation or we should still be thinking about what are other opportunities in those areas?
2: Yeah, I think I would generally say that I think just like the first category is generally overhyped and overinvested into, and the second category is one that actually people are underappreciating sort of how much, you know, promise there is. And so um, I'm actually more of the opinion of like, we don't really need many more launcher, you know, companies at this point, I think there's like almost a hundred companies that have raised north of 10 million of venture capital. And so I'm somewhat skeptical, and especially as sort of Starship starts to come online that like, there's going to be more than like three or four players. Like there's a reason that like you know, there's only like Boeing and Airbus and like, you know, maybe a small handful of others of like, you know, aeroframe, you know, manufacturers. Um, and yes, there are more operators than that, You know, right? United, Delta, et cetera. And maybe at some point regulators will step in and say that there needs to be a different manufacturer of the like rocket versus who operates the rocket, et cetera. But we're probably a ways away from that. But like fundamentally, it seems unlikely that there'll be more than call it three, maybe four players. And so I think that area is sort of like massively, you know, overhyped. I think the area of like the sort of supply chain, actually, you know, sort of for call it, you know, satellites, et cetera, is like massively underhyped. Like I think, you know, VCs are underappreciating sort of, if you make call it the best, you know, sort of, um, you know, aerospace grade solar panel or power system, and make it cheaper, cheap, and make it, you know, at the cost of off the shelf consumer electronics, so that's actually like a sort of, you know, a massive, uh, sort of venture scale market. But it's not something that people pay attention to because it's not like there's just sexiness around. Sort of, I feel like you know, firing off rockets. Um, that people appreciate Um, and then on the second half of the economy both in earth observation and in sort of satellite communications i actually think that you like while yes there are a lot of companies pursuing this i actually still think there's sort of like a massive you know um untapped potential here and part of it just comes to like there's just so many different use cases and there's just a lot of different industries where they haven't thought through what would i do if i had this type of satellite data And then each individual industry's needs is actually like wildly different. So like, you know, double click on one of the use cases that I, you know, sort of mentioned earlier, if you're a methane gas pipeline that is specifically trying to like, you know, replace your like, you know, once a week, like helicopter tour um, that you have to do over your, you know, methane pipeline to make sure that there's no leaks for, you know, regulatory reasons. And instead want to replace that with a satellite. Well, that satellite design looks wildly, wildly different than like the like you know hedge fund that is trying to look at like how many you know you know uh, uh, you know ships are leaving Chinese ports. Um, you know, both the like wavelength that you're looking for, right? Like you know, methane has very particular you know wavelengths that it you know reflects, um, and so you know. The basically like quote unquote camera that you need to design to look for methane it looks widely different than like the like camera that you need to design you know, to look for uh, you know ships leaving Chinese ports. Where those satellites fly, how those satellites are designed, how big they are, what orbit they're in, etc. It's kind of hard. Like people think like oh you throw up a satellite and it can kind of you know go all over Earth and it's like no like you kind of get you know stuck in one particular lane. And unlike you know driving a car, it's actually pretty fucking hard to shift lanes. And so once you're up there, you're kind of up there for that particular use case. And I think there's actually a long long tail of use cases for that type of Earth observation. And then same thing actually, you know, with you know sort of satellites, right? Starlink is great for the, you know, sort of, you know, Yellowstone and maybe like, you know, maritime you know use case where you need, you know, sort of real time, but like, you know, relatively low bandwidth. But let's say you're like, you know, Netflix and you want to do sort of like you know massive transfer of you know data. Um, and have a backup to call it like the undersea you know, fiber optic cables, there you're actually much better off having like a, you know, you know, mid geo or full geo sort of, um, you know, satellites so call called, you know, something that like Astronus a is building, uh, which is a very different looking satellite than what Starlink is building. Um, that is, you know, really optimized for, you know, um, you know, having much, much more bandwidth, uh, but much higher latency, right, where it turns out, you know, the Netflix is the world, they don't really care about latency, right, because like, it's not like, you know, you're trying to play a video game in real time, like you are in Starlink, uh, but they do care about, you know, how cheaply can you get my bandwidth and like, Starlink bandwidth is in some ways kind of expensive, because they do fly so low, and they have to refresh their, you know, satellite constellation on a super regular basis because they fly so low. And again, why do they fly so low? Because they want, you know, sort of much tighter latency to compete for those types of consumer use cases. And so um, I think like, you know, people actually underappreciate just how much more value there is to, I think, be had um, in Earth observation and, uh, you know, satellite communications. Um, Not quite as, you know, I wouldn't say it's quite as underappreciated as that sort of supply chain that I mentioned earlier, but like, you know, in the grand scheme of, um, you know, relative to rockets, let's say it's definitely nowhere near the level of hype of rockets.
1: (laughs) One, I think that's a great overview. So um, shifting away just from startups building in space, what do you think the general public misunderstands the most about space
2: and the space economy right now? I think it's just like, you know, exponential equations are just really hard to predict, you know, uh, you know, across a variety of different industries, right? Whether it's, you know, people underappreciating how quickly we went from like, you know, supercomputers, you know, requiring, you know, full rooms to everybody having a personal PC. I think sort of, you know, space is going through that, you know, sort of same transition right now. Um, the example that I kind of like to give is... Um, Way before starting Varda and like, you know, even you know, starting to think about, you know, even investing in a company like this in like twenty sixteen, I was still working on my first company. Um, I actually like uh, had a bet with a couple of my friends from MIT. We were like out to dinner and I was explaining to them, like, hey, launch costs are dropping faster and faster. Yes, the Falcon 9 is not like reusable yet, but like the fact that they even got it to like land and crash in a barge, like means that they'll be able to land it and land it without blowing up one day. Like now, is that gonna take a year, two years, three years? unclear but like it's going to happen and then the moment that happens it's a massive drop in launch costs and once that happens people will want to continue to drop it and there will continue to be this sort of you know Moore's law you know type uh, you know decrease in launch costs and what that means is that like one day the sort of like manufacturing in space is not just going to be done on the iss but it's going to be done independent of the iss and commercially done this was basically like you know uh, october 2016 i made the bet that basically by january 1st 2022 there would be a company the manufacture something in orbit and brings it back down, you know, for a profit. Um, unfortunately, I ended up obviously losing a bet, and Barda has not yet done that. But I wasn't that far off. Um, you know, you know, I'm, I'm going to be about 15 months off on like a five and a half year long bet, which is, I think, like not the worst, you know, you know, sort of uh, margin margin of error. And so I think people underappreciate. You know the implications and that like I felt like I had a decent understanding and even then I've been maybe surprised by you know how sort of quickly and reusable sort of Falcon 9 has become but I think now people underappreciate what is going to happen over the next decade so my you know next bet um, and you know I, I sort of you know when I tell the story I caution that you know sometimes I take these bets so seriously that I end up you know starting the fucking company uh, to win the bet so uh, even if I you know missed it by 15 months but the next bet that i have going is actually with my wife where uh, uh, by 2032 I believe that that year in 2032 um, there will be at least a hundred humans on earth that spend over a day in space, so it's not just like a quick you know sort of roller coaster ride um uh, and that those people aren't billionaires uh but you know they have uh less than a hundred uh you know million uh in net worth, so they're you know sent to millionaires that are scraping by um, rather than just the billionaires. Um, and you know, I, I, did caution my wife though, that if, you know, the best starting to come to, you know, close to fruition, I may have to start the company to go ensure that, but just with Starship and some of these other vehicles coming online, I think people underappreciate just like how cheap it's going to be to be able to run a sort of like, you know, commercial Leo, you know, sort of space station and eventually turn that into a hotel and how quickly the number of humans sort of in space will ramp up. I and mean, we we already had a point where I think it was this, uh, you know, sort of past summer where there was a couple of dragons in orbit, the Chinese station was in orbit, um, and we had uh, these sort of Blue Origin, you know, sort of uh, rocket going up, and I think at one point there was actually 24 people in orbit. And so it's like, okay, we currently at 24, right, at one time. If you raise that exponentially, and then eventually say, okay, beyond just astronauts, who are these like, you know, 100 people that are there just for tourist basis? It almost feels certain that by 2032, I was like, no question, I might even take that bet on a shorter time frame. So I think that's the type of stuff that people underappreciate, and it's not just the launch cost. It's the fact that like, as more rockets are built, rocket engines get cheaper. As rocket engines get cheaper, being able to move around in space gets cheaper. As people have you know, cheaper moving around in space, people send more satellites. As more satellites, the solar panels get cheaper. As the solar panels get cheaper, people send more and more. You send up these manufacturing stations. And so it's not just the launch cost. It's all aspects of the ecosystem just massively dropping in costs and increasing in cadence um, as it becomes just a larger and larger commercial economy. I think hearing Elon last
1: week announced that at scale, Starship will end up costing around a million dollars a launch was mind-blowing, right? Like think of sending a hundred people up for a million dollars. I mean, the equation's completely change. So um, last question for you on kind of the space industry and economy as a whole. Um, We've talked about all of the amazing positives that come out of that. What are the risk factors here, right? We saw uh, Russia with their ASAT. China's done that before. Like... do do you worry about that? Do you think that's something that's top of mind for you when you're, like, even for VARDA, are you you worried about those risk factors or do you think the danger of all of that is somewhat overblown?
2: Uh, You know, while obviously, like, the Russia ASAT test, you know, has led to, like, real operational challenges, like there are multiple constellations that have had to, you know, sort of move out of the way, the ISS has has had to do some maneuvers. I think in the grand scheme of things, I still think it's, like, a largely overblown worry. I think the combination of both, you know, you know, just as there's sort of like a carbon credit, you know, sort of system that we, you know, built up over time that has, you know, made it so that there's actually capitalistic incentives for eventually, you know, going sort of quote unquote green. I think there will, you know, soon be a set of regulations that does the same thing around sort of orbital debris and even, you know, provide sort of bounties for people for, you know, sort of deorbiting debris. Um, and you know, at least specifically for Varda, we're flying in such a low orbit um, that any debris that is up there deorbits quite quickly. And so it's actually a relatively like clean area of space. There's for sure risks that come to space, but I think more of it is going to be like, you know, is there not a, enough of a, you know, economic demand for people going to orbit or sending satellites to orbit such that like, you know, Starship doesn't have enough cadence until they build it into like a operational muscle um, and that makes it so that, you know, Starship goes by the wayside, like the space shuttle did, where there just wasn't enough demand to actually, you know, sort of justify, uh, you know, sort of keeping it up on a regular basis. That's the type of stuff that keeps me, you know, up at night and worried is just like, you know, can we grow that sort of space economy quickly enough to connect with the rest of the economy while we're building up all of this infrastructure? You don't want to just let the infrastructure languish, right? Like, you know, the reason, you know, the railroad succeeded is because, you know, people had oil to transport on them because like there wasn't enough people to transport it on them and actually justify it. And that's how, you know, sort of, Uh, uh, the railroad system in the United States eventually grew. Same thing with space, right? Like, yeah, sending 100 people up is interesting, but at the end of the day, like, you got to build the oil because the oil is going to be 99% of the um, sort of justification for going up and down, not just, you know, tourism.
0: At a geopolitical level, I would imagine that you probably agree with the statement that we're we're in a space race right now. Can you help level set, you know, the state uh, of of the discussions and and where we're at now relative to the CCP, relative to Russia? Uh, And how concerned are you? Uh, that 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 we may not be f- that that far ahead.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, China last year effectively launched almost as much as the entire rest of the world combined. Um, and uh, they effectively managed to get their hands on Falcon Nine like you know designs and effectively build an exact replica. They haven't figured out how to make it reusable yet because it turns out like you know that comes with a little bit more you know software and you know avionics and you know sensor know how. Uh, but they clearly have a willingness to just you know pump tons and tons of dollars into it. Now uh, we did actually you know sort of send up more mass than they did right. So you know in total the United States is still. Um sort of you know far far ahead of you know China on a mass basis, but not by like a massive amount, not by like ten x or anything. Um, and China's you know sort of mass to you know orbit is growing quite quickly. China has also, you know, decided to actually send up, you know, their own independent space station, and you know they, you know, have a rotating crew of two, three astronauts at a time that are operating it, and they're, you know, sort of the first, you know, country, you know, outside of the, you know, ISS to basically be able to run their own independent space station. Hypersonic glide vehicles that I discussed earlier are effectively a space technology, right? Those glide vehicles go up on an actual rocket and then purposely, you know, deorbit themselves from space to, you know, choose and land on a target, and so. You know, I absolutely think we're sort of in this, you know, space race and I think it's ever more important than before, given that, you know, this, you know, adversary, you know, has shown a willingness to drive tons of capital and has a much, much larger economy than sort of the last, you know, space race ever did. And so I think that's why you're starting to see a lot more counter reactions of, you know, there's a congressional committee on hypersonics now. People are talking about, you know, the United States, you know, landing on the moon again, you know, soon. And, you know, I could see these sort of, you know, Combined, you know, sort of NASA plus Space Force budget over the course of the next decade, actually starting to approach the Apollo era in terms of a percentage of you know GDP. I think part of it being that, like you know, the sort of the DoD budget on space um, has so massively increased, even if NASA necessarily um, you know, hasn't massively upsized. Um, so we're still currently ahead. I think we have a chance to sort of maintain, you know, being ahead. Uh, but it, you know, it is not like it was a decade ago where we effectively had no competition. Um, and you know, Russia is still doing some things, but you know. Um, I, they are not, I think, a particularly um, large threat right now, you know, sort of in the space ecosystem, but China very much so is.
0: And I, I'm sure you've heard this sort of stupid nihilistic criticism that, you know, back in the Cold War, we sort of just spent all this money, that the, the, the space race was just a distraction between two nations that, that just, you know, wanted to spend all this money to compete with each other. You know, if, if we don't actually win this out, And, you know, if we don't get ahead, what are the potential consequences for us to, for the U.S. to lose the space race? Why should people care?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you can categorize sort of space expenditures into two buckets. The first is like, you know, I think commercial companies, the private companies should be, you know, should be able to do whatever the hell they want, right? So venture capitalists want to pour a lot of dollars into it because they see that there will be returns in it. Um, I don't think that the public should have you know sort of much of an opinion or input into that. I think it's only entirely a question of sort of you know where do public dollars go and so I think I sort of you know share the you know Elon philosophy here, which is i 'm not suggesting that uh, you know call ten percent of our GDP should be spent on you know the space race. Um, I do think there's a lot of problems down here and at home that you know should be focused on. But, you know, it's not clear to me that, you know, the right answer, which is, you know, today, like, you know, point you zero one percent of the GDP is the right answer. It's probably, you know, worth upsizing that by, you know, roughly 10x. And I still don't think that that, you know, sort of hampers our ability to, you know, make progress in the problems that we have down here. And there's just been, you know, so much proof, of just like every public dollar, you know, spent on, you know, aerospace and space exploration has had massive implications and benefits for, you know, down here, you know, back at home, whether, you know, it's... Uh, you know, power systems that are built or medical devices that are based off of aerospace technology. Um, there's so many sort of tangential benefits to you know, sort of having that sort of inspired generation of engineers working on these types of very difficult problems um, that has such tangential you know, sort of benefits down, uh, for life down here on earth. And then obviously companies like Varda where um, you know there's certain pharmaceutical drugs that literally aren't possible to be made you know, down here on earth. You need to make them in sort of the microgravity of space. So yeah well, I think there's you know there's some merit to that argument if you you know take it to the extreme case of like fifty percent of our GDP getting spent on space. I don't think that's what most folks in space are suggesting
0: right and maybe uh, up until three years ago people would look at this industry and they would say, well, you know, this matters. But when you look at the founders that can actually start these are, you know, Elon Musk, who was a billionaire before he started SpaceX, or Palmer Luckey, that had Oculus before he started Endro. And now we're seeing a new generation of space companies um, with, with you, Avarda, and with Chris Hadrian, what has changed? I mean, one obvious thing is the three of us on the score are dying to, to to fund the next Adrian to fund the next Andrew. But from a from a playbook and in founders starting these companies, uh, what is different today than than up until a few years ago?
2: Yeah, I think it's two factors that are sort of playing you know both to the you know benefit of folks like you know Chris and I which is you know first just the fundamental infrastructure cost right I was touching on this earlier of like you know call you know Varda's first mission that we're you know sending up that is a demonstration of our you know orbital manufacturing and you know sort of re-entry system you know our budget in a you know sort of version of the world that existed call it you know even 3 4 or 5 years ago to send up that first mission probably would have been like minimum 150 175 million versus now we're basically doing that same equivalent mission and it'll probably be on the order of like 20 or 25 million, right? Um, And yes, while that is expensive, that is still very much so in like venture scale of, you know, hell, there are enterprise SaaS companies that build, you know, sort of fundamental, you know, infrastructure software that, you know, burn through that much, you know, on R&D as well. And so it's in the world of sort of, uh, you know, venture scale. Um, And then the second is, you know, not only have the sort of, you know, costs gone down, but also investor appetite has vastly grown as that sort of initial set of billionaire founders have proven that there are returns here, right? SpaceX now on the secondary market trading north of 100 billion means that there's a lot of people uh, now that have made a lot of money in SpaceX. Um, and it turns out, you know, just like I say, you know, the best way to get people to Mars is convince them they're going to make a lot of money. The best way to get people to invest into space more is to convince them they're going to make a lot of money. And the best way to convince them they're going to make them a lot of money is make them a lot of money. And a lot of people have made a lot of money in SpaceX You know, investing uh, over the, over the past decade. Um, And so I think the combination of those two factors is leading to the sort of, you know, call it barrier to entry or the bar that is required for, um, you know, a founder uh, wanting to start a space company uh, being massively lower. Is it as easy as like starting a, you know, consumer social company, um, you know, or an enterprise SaaS company? No, not quite yet, Uh, but it is no longer only in the realm of billionaires.
0: Right. So the, the bar is lower. And wh- what is your advice to to young founders who want to build something in the space? Uh, is, is there a playbook here that, that, that you think they can follow?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the thing that I always say is, if you're going to make a space company, study the current, you know, business models and meet with a variety of the companies, you know, first, especially if you're in that first category of like, if you're a space company selling to other space companies, it's a pretty nascent ecosystem. Like, I think there's approximately like, At this point, maybe 25 companies that have raised north of call it $10 million in like the last three or four years. So it's not like some like infinite set of customers. And so if like the product that you're building isn't going to be purchased by one of those 25 people, then you don't have a business model. And if it is, then you do. And like a lot of investors will very enthusiastically end up funding you. And so I typically encourage people like, you know, if you can't necessarily or have the interest or the patience or you know ability to you know go join a commercial space company and learn it from the inside of uh, of a existing player, um, then go and meet with as many of the pre-existing players, understand their business models, and use that type of feedback to formulate it. I think a lot of people will say like, ah, oh, I want to start a space company, and they sort of start in like a you know sort of vacuum where um, they haven't really you know sort of considered um, sort of what is out there and who is building you know sort of successful sort of commercial space business models today. Um, and I think sort of I, uh, you know, benefited, let's say, from the fact that by being an investor in commercial space companies, I basically got paid to study commercial space business models for like three and a half years, four years uh, before deciding to pull the trigger on VARDA. But you can definitely do that sort of same work uh, by, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, making it your nights and weekends hobby project. That's probably the primary thing. And then the second thing is, you know, sort of once once you're deciding on and narrowing in on your area, I think, you know, sort of recruiting from sort of the pre existing aerospace, you know, sort of networks um, is sort of the right way to go. I think a lot of times I see certain teams where it's like they have a really great idea they actually thought through the business model but then like they have a core like avionics risk and like none of the founding team is avionics engineers and it's like okay well i mean you know as much as you know like seeing you know three fresh out scene grads tackle this kind of problem it's like you probably should like yeah you know, just at least try and find one co-founder that like you know has a you know core area of expertise around this um so yeah those are probably the, the two biggest things is uh yeah you know, think through the various you know pre-existing models study them and then you know find the right team so I, as we think about making it easier for more
1: people to dive into the space, right? I think launch costs going down is one major factor. Um, another qu- question about a potential factor that would make it easier to start in the space is how do you think about uh, government funding going into this, right? So programs like Afworks, Spaceworks, et cetera, do you think that's a distraction for most companies? Do you think it uh, helps them and gives them some initial revenue uh, in the beginning to fund some of this development? And then in the same vein, how have you thought about that with Varda, both keeping you in line with your actual mission objectives and preventing it from becoming a distraction?
0: Yeah, my answer
2: for Varda and both my suggestion to, you know, sort of other founders is, you know, roughly, you know, the, the same in that I think they can be an extremely valuable customer, right? Unlike most customers, the DoD, like AFWorks, SpaceWorks, DIU, et cetera, is willing to pay for R&D as opposed to just being willing to pay for basically like a finished product that you you deliver to them. And then I think has a lot of advantages if you can make it so that the R&D that the DoD is interested in funding aligns... Ideally, not, you know, it, it, uh, it's typically impossible to make it align perfectly, but call it at least has like 90 or 95% overlap with what you would have been doing for your commercial customers in the end game, anyways. I think where some companies get like run astray is when they too much pivot back and forth towards various like SBIRs and phase ones and phase twos and just like, you know, keep sort of going on that track and keep sort of pivoting their product line to try and focus on what is the latest sort of DOD solicitation and what is, you know, sort of afterwards asking for, as opposed to having a sort of pre-existing sort of strong viewpoint on like, this is what we are building. And then like, we will apply for DOD grants or convince the DOD to create grants around the type of, you know, technology that we're creating um, that we'll then, you know, sort of go apply to. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm generally very pro there are, you know, shifts in the right direction. Is it, you know, the perfect end all, you know, or has the, you know, sort of, Has the DoD shifted enough? Still not yet, right? Um, I think like programs like, you know, AFWERX and Stratify do now provide a path towards, you know, call it 40, 50, $60 million of, you know, sort of DoD funding um, that offsets, you know, uh, uh, R&D dollars. But I still don't think there's a great path towards From you know taking those sort of R and D you know programs and then eventually translating that to an operational program of record. And so there's this sort of classic, you know, sort of what's called the quote unquote valley of death between these sort of R and D arms of the DoD versus the actual operational arms, where they don't end up you know despite you know giving uh, you know these you know sort of startups lots and lots of you know capital to work on this R and D, they ultimately you know never end up giving that same startup. Uh, Any type of operational contract until the startup ends up either folding because of that, because they end up focusing too much on the DoD. Uh, So, still lots of work ahead of us. Um, but yeah, definitely something that we you know think about actively at Varda. In that you know we do have a variety of programs going with the DoD on a couple different pieces of technology, but they are again very much in the roadmap of what we were building for our own commercial needs. Uh, and they've been phenomenal splitters not only in dollars, but also it turns out like when we needed a heat shield material, or we needed uh, you know hypersonic you know modeling data around you know what would it look like when we went through reentry. Um, it turns out, you know, sort of the Air Force and NASA were able to massively speed up our engineering roadmap. And so it was was somewhat of a two-way street of like, you know, not only did they help us with, you know, sort of capital and offsetting R&D, but it wasn't just the capital, it was also the expertise that they were bringing to us. And then vice versa, the expertise and, you know, product and eventual technology that we were bringing to them.
0: And Delin, how can founders help push the space industry forward, even if they don't have a deeply technical background?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, building a company is building a company, like, you know, every aerospace company has a lot of the same challenges that enterprise SaaS does, you know, whether it's, you know, FP&A, whether it's fundraising, whether it's comms, whether it's, you know, biz ops, customer engagement, customer success, all these things that, you know, exist at like a, you know, a Splunk or a a Snowflake also, you know, exist, uh, you know, at a, you know, at a SpaceX or a Varda, right? Um, these you know same types of challenges exist. And so there are plenty of folks you know sort of on the Varda team that have come from very sort of non-traditional quote unquote you know deep tech backgrounds. And so I think you know sort of joining one of these companies is by far you know sort of the best way to do it. and then uh, you know sort of um, you know starting a company with a set of maybe you know, I think there are a lot of founders in the Silicon Valley ecosystem that maybe understand fundraising and team building super well. And a lot of SpaceX engineers that don't necessarily understand, you know, fundraising and team building super well, but understand a very particular piece of technology super well. And sort of pairing up with somebody like that to, you know, sort of help bring their technology to market is, I think, another way uh, that people can really focus. There's definitely a whole, you know, cadre of, you know, folks uh, that, you know, uh, grind through their time at SpaceX and then you know want to start a company but don't necessarily know how to.
0: <laughs> right. And today we we covered a lot of the challenges both in the industry but also at a, at a geopolitical level with an adversary that that perhaps presents the, the biggest challenge that the United States has, has ever faced, which is manifesting itself in, in the space industry but also in, in many other ways. What keeps you optimistic?
2: I think fundamentally said like if you study you know all of the underlying inputs into the space ecosystem right whether it's the dollars that are flowing into it, the number of engineers that are getting trained up, you know Cornell's and Purdue's aerospace program graduates per year, all of these things are only continuing to increase. Like yes, there are certain areas where we're a bit behind. Right, um, you know, China actually has better hypersonic PhD programs than we do. But like, you know, fundamentally, we are much more likely to have a Starship online way, way earlier than they have anything, you know, like that online. And that, you know, the fact that we have Starship online will make it so that, you know, any other technological advantage that they have will effectively be negated when we can, you know, send, you know, 100 tons you know to orbit. You don't need a particularly precise hypersonic vehicle, you know, if you can just send a massive one that is, you know, sort of, you know, the size of a, you know, semi truck. And so I think, I think you know, the, the combination of just both the, you know, underlying inputs, as well as there is this sort of shifting tune in the DoD to try to work with more of these sort of commercial backed players. And there's more of an understanding in the DoD that what they have is fundamentally an adoption problem, not an innovation problem, right? DoD used to need to pay for innovation, whereas now the innovation is happening. And now the DoD just needs to optimize their adoption of these sort of, uh, you know, fundamental new technologies that startups are bringing to bring market. And there are, you know, sort of early, you know, sort of strong signals for that as well, right? Programs like Stratify just didn't exist, you know, uh, in, you know, the you know three four or five years ago right being able you know to give a sort of startup R D and you know offset funding on the order of you know thirty million dollars just wasn't possible you know before you sort of you know got capped out in this sort of three four five maybe max ten million dollar range and so you know I hope that then gets increased to you know future programs that are on the order of three hundred million dollars but the fact that we've gone from you know five to ten million to thirty million in just you know three four years is a really you know promising signal as well and I think how Not only, you know, DOD, but also, you know, congressional representatives and senators, et cetera, are also starting to, you know, pay attention to this world um, as they start to realize, you know, how important it is for us to maintain this technological advantage. So, um, you know, while there's definitely stuff that, you know, spooks me or I get worried about in the grand scheme of things, I think, you know, I think America is the greatest country on earth and I think we will continue to be. I love that. So
1: for all of our listeners who care about Western ideals, the future of our country and all of these values, If you were to give them some advice, knowing that some of them might already have their own company that they're building or going down their own path, what advice would you give them on how to kind of further those underlying values that drive all of us?
2: Yeah, I mean, sometimes one of the simplest things that I like to say is just like hang up a damn American flag in your office. Like, you know, I think it's like, you know, I think too many times right now, whether it's like patriotism or nationalism or, you know, just the American flag. Are somehow seen as like this like non cachet thing, and I think it's like incredibly important that we're all proudly you know sort of patriotic. It's an incredible country that we've you know built in a very short period of time, and yet you know somehow you walk around you know sort of liberal San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and you can't see a single you know damn you know sort of you know American flag hanging you know in any office or any home. And so that's one of the you know the simplest ways. And I think the other is just you know vote for the you know politicians and you know donate to them that you know sort of represent these underlying values, the ones that are sort of pro-America, pro-skilled immigration, you know, pro-technology. Um, not the ones that are, you know, think that, you know, sort of humanity is a blight on the earth and, you know, needs to be removed. Um, I think that's the exact sort of opposite, you know, sort of form of thinking that we need today. And so uh, I think there's, you know, sort of plenty of ways to, you know, have that effect um, and, you know, start to, you know, sort of contribute, even if you're not necessarily working in aerospace or dual use defense.
1: Delian, this has been incredible. As every time we chat, I feel like I I learned something new. So thank thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, We're really excited to get this out.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. Check us out at villageglobal.vc where you can find links and
2: other information about today's episode.